Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So very similar to the season of Lent, Advent is a season of preparation. Uh, Lent prepares us for Holy Week. Advent prepares us for the Feast of the Incarnation and the Christmas season. The idea behind Advent is to retrace, to be drawn into the sense of longing for the Messiah's coming that was felt by generations of God's faithful people, the kind of yearning that we heard in Isaiah, the prophet, Isaiah 40. Um, in theory, this sense of anticipation and patient waiting would give way to overwhelming joy and festive celebration when Christmas Day finally comes. Um, the closest that many of us probably get to this Advent sense of waiting um, it is the patient, pained staring of children at wrapped presents under a tree, day after day after day after a long day. I've often thought a wrapped present is the modern um, icon of the season of Advent. Um, I like that better. Another person suggested maybe the, the icon of Advent today is just waiting in line to check out at Target on a Saturday in December. Uh, but there's nothing good at the end of that. <laughs> um, and again, this waiting, while, while that is an ancient practice, most of us, I think, realize um, how odd and, and even countercultural that seems today. Um, even in the church, Christmas has uh, displaced Advent on most of our calendars, or at least they kind of uh, bleed together a little bit. They mingle with one another. Um, that may allow us to avoid the stressful waiting, but it also blunts our ability to understand and share in that exuberant joy of the first Christmas. Um, one theologian, Stanley Grin, says, we cannot truly sing joy to the world unless we have thoroughly rehearsed, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Um, so let's continue our uh, patient Advent journey. Um, we're going to look at a psalm again this morning like we did last week. We'll be in Psalm 85. And I'll bounce a little bit between Psalm 85 and the English Standard Version um, and then the poetic form we have in our prayer book and in the bulletin, um, that metrical version of the psalm. Um, and as early as the second century, um, the earliest Christians read this psalm, Psalm 85, as pointing towards Christmas and pointing towards and highlighting uh, foretelling the incarnation of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. So let's look at this together. Um, we'll, we'll look at, at two different aspects. First, uh, the tension that we see in the first seven verses, and then the balance of the final six verses. And so first, the tension. Uh, we immediately sense that the singers of this psalm are in distress. They're uncomfortable. Uh, they're in between. Uh, this is an in-between psalm, in-between a time when God showed mercy to his people and the time when they pray that God will act again. And you get that sense of them bouncing back and forth. Lord, here's what you did. Lord, we need you to do it again. There's this tension and turmoil within uh, God's people, and that waiting is difficult. It should make us squirm a little bit. It's a little uncomfortable. Um, as the, the late, great Tom Petty once saying, the waiting is the hardest part. Now, we're not good at waiting, are we? Not at all, especially when things are in distress. 
Here God's people are stuck. They're waiting. Uh, They're trusting and they are dependent. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you not revive us again? They're waiting for the Lord to move again, for the season that they're in to pass and culminate into something better. Um, Many think that this psalm that would have been linked to the time of, of the exile and maybe even the, right before the return from exile, when God brought his people uh, back to the land of Israel. Um, now, just a little background. Um, the concept of exile plays a prominent role throughout the Old Testament. That theme uh, begins all the way in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, our parents, um, they sin. And one of the results of that sin is they are exiled from the garden. They are sent east of Eden, never uh, to enter again. Um, if you read through the Old Testament, we see these major, uh, disruptive, calamitous times for God's people. Several times, mighty empires will invade. They'll come into Israel. They'll destroy. They'll wreak havoc. They'll capture almost everyone, taking the land for themselves and taking the Israelites home to a kind of servitude, um, displaced, um, exiled. And and just a little bit of of history. I I Sometimes we read some of the historical books uh, in the daily office this fall, but it gets a little muddy, doesn't it? As we think about all those books of history, um, after the death of King David's son, King Solomon, um, Israel, the nation, split apart. It divided into two separate kingdoms. And you had the northern kingdom, that was made up of 10 of the 12 tribes. Um, And that included three of those we talked about last week, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Uh, They split off into the northern kingdom. And then the the other two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, they were the southern kingdom, and they became known as Judah. And so you had Israel, and that split into Israel and Judah, um, which gets a little confusing because one retained the name uh, the exiles that, that come actually come on both of them. When Israel is divided, they are vulnerable. And disaster comes. War and exile come to both the northern and the southern kingdom. And so we hear about a time when Assyria, which we would think of as it's kind of where modern-day Iraq is, um, they come into the northern kingdom and they decimate them. They wipe them out entirely and take them into exile. And then a little bit later, uh, soldiers from Babylon come, modern-day Iran, and they absolutely decimate the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, They destroy the temple. They take all of uh, the people into um, exile. And we're told in the Old Testament that these exiles are, are God's judgment on the people's division, on their idolatry, on their unbelief. Um, and and as, as unfamiliar as that might seem, um, we're actually pretty aware that this is a major theme. We just don't think about it. But we sing it in everyone's favorite Advent hymn. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile there until the Son of God appear. Um, Advent deals with exile. And the ways that God's people are exiled from his presence, the way that God's people in the past were exiled uh, from their home. 
If you read through after those exiles of Assyria and Babylon, um, the northern kingdom is, is pretty much dispersed forever. Um, we, don't, we don't hear much about them. There's this hope that they'll, they'll appear and return and there will be unity. But the southern kingdom, eventually, those two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, they're in Babylon, and eventually uh, the king there, the emperor, relents and let them return to the land. We get that in Ezra and Nehemiah. Again, these kind of murky historical books in the Old Testament. Um, and it tells the tale of God's people. They return to the land, and they start rebuilding. And they rebuild homes, and they rebuild the temple. Um, but after that, it, man, they're looking around going, is there more to it? Um, is there more to this? Because uh, what happens is they return, and they rebuild the temple, but God's glory never returns. His presence doesn't seem to come back. And so they're left waiting. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright says that one whole strand of thought and prayer from the time of the Babylonian exile onward concerned the belief that the Lord had abandoned the city and the temple at the time of the original exile because according to Ezekiel, there was wickedness and idolatry within Israel. The great prophecies of the Old Testament had insisted that one day the Lord would come back but although the temple had been rebuilt um, after its destruction, there are signs that they're still waiting for his glory to be revealed and return in the way that Isaiah had promised. You see, the people had returned from exile, but God's glory had not returned. It had not come back. And they're yearning for God to be in their midst like he once was. There's, there's this long timeline uh, that they're navigating. And so this psalm, Psalm 85, is about the mighty work of salvation that God had started. Um, and, and they're saying, Lord, would you hurry up and finish up? Would you come and do what you have promised uh, to do? Verses 1 through 3 are all about God's forgiveness, the past work of God forgiving their sins. Look, look at the terms that pile up. Lord, you were favorable. You restored you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. You forgave and lifted the iniquity. You covered their sin. Alan Ross, who's an Old Testament scholar, loves this idea that the sin is lifted and it's covered. Because he said, if we think about the need for sin to be lifted, uh, we see that sin is this heavy burden. It weighs us down. Um, I think we prayed in our confession, it, it's intolerable. This burden is too much for us to bear. And God says, let me lift that from you. Let me take that sin. And, and to cover um, doesn't mean to pretend something hasn't happened. Um, it's to deal with it properly. And so covering their sin describes the pardon, not, not a mere veiling of it. Judgment is over because forgiveness has been given. Even in the midst of terrible sin and unbelief and idolatry, over and over again, we see God's grace and mercy to his wayward people. Uh, thanks be to God that that's his character. That's how he relates to you and to me. The Lord forgives their rebellion. He calls them back to himself. He restores them from exile. He displays steadfast love to them. Uh, this is not someone making a list of who's been naughty and who's been nice. Instead, we have someone who exhibits faithful, steadfast love in the face of our sin. 
And so this psalm is built on that foundation. Lord, you have forgiven. You have done a great work in the past. Um, Would you show up and extend it again? They're in need of God's restoration and refreshment. God has already saved, but where's his kingdom? Where's his presence? Where's his glory? Um, We can relate to that. Because for you and me, God has, has saved us, but we're still waiting for the fullness of his kingdom, aren't we? I mean, we've begun a relationship with the Lord, but we haven't seen him face to face. We will. We're still waiting on that to be um, completed. God has already in Christ defeated sin, death, and the devil, uh, but they still walk around. They still encounter our lives. They haven't been put away with finally. And so we're saying, Lord, would you come and finish? Would you hurry up and finish up uh, the good work of salvation Uh, that you have done. Uh, Beth Tanner, who's a a Canadian scholar, um, she says Psalm 85 is a song that asks God to restore the relationship, to set the world right based on his great acts in the past. Um, And this is a prayer for any time God's people are in need of restoration, of a new work from the Lord. Um, The psalm as a whole then is a prayer for God to act now as God has acted in the past. And it brings a vision of how God and God's people are at peace. And his good creation is indeed at peace. And that's the tension. The tension between how God has acted, how we trust God will act, and the in-between we feel. And the inner turmoil we feel. But then the next six verses are all about uh, balance. If you think about tension as two things pulling apart, like a tug of war, Um, This is things that we think would be pulling apart, think would be at a tug of war, and they're working hand in hand. They're leaning in towards one another. You get this beautiful balance in these last six verses. Um, Look at verse 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's not pulling apart in tug of war. That's leaning in and working uh, together. This, this, actually, this balance always reminds me of John 1, uh, 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not intention, but perfectly balanced. Grace and truth working with one another. The Lord Jesus comes full of grace and truth to bring us peace to bring us shalom. Beth Tanner again says, what better word is there for the Lord to speak and answer to their pleading than shalom, peace? Because that that peace is much more than the absence of war. It is the culmination of God's kingdom where all have what they need and live in comfort and without fear. Alan Ross, truth and love are now partners, not opponents. They are the fruit of atonement, not the means. Heaven and earth now work together to bring good to the earth. Reflecting on how these early Christians would have sung and prayed this psalm, Bishop N.T. Wright says those who would have sang and prayed the psalms through that earlier period uh, would have recognized this feeling. The, The tension between the past when the Lord Jesus had surely been there the future when he's promised to return, and the puzzling present 
when, when we might perhaps sense the Lord's presence, but not in the full promised glory and rescuing power. He had promised to come back. And so they sang and they hoped and they waited. Lord, would you come again? One of the earliest church fathers, St. Irenaeus, um, he was born in the year 130 and died in 202. said that this psalm, um, and actually this is so good that this is why I was like, we have to look at Psalm 85. <laughs> um, St. Irenaeus says there's a twofold prophecy in this psalm. And you can see the whole story of Jesus' work. He says, first, we have this prophecy in verse 11 that faithfulness springs up from the ground. And he actually said, if you think about the book of Genesis, Adam was formed from what? The dust of the earth. And then brought up to be a living being. He says, in the same way, the second Adam springs forth from the ground. He says, you see in that promise, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, who sprang up in the midst of God's good creation, sprang up from the earth, from that which is of the earth. Uh, us. And then second, he said, not only do we see the incarnation in that prophecy, so that we see the resurrection as well. That if faithfulness springs up from the earth, we can think of the incarnation of Jesus, and we can think of when the, the very word of God was laid in the earth and sprang forth anew, uh, not from, uh, from a womb, but from his tomb in the earth. And furthermore, the exile we have talked about, again, was not the only exile. The first exile was in the book of Genesis. As we said, dwelling in paradise with God, the first couple sins, they're exiled from Eden. And in many ways, the entire story of the Bible is a journey to get back there from our Eden exile. The balance we see in this psalm actually sounds like new creation. Glory may dwell in our land, verse 9. Everything is right again. Verse 10 and 11, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Again, faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. They are yearning for a time. Uh, they are yearning with hope for a harvest and an abundance as the curse and exile are reversed and lifted. Verse 12, yes, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. And God who walked with his people in the cool of the day will walk with them again. Verse 13, righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. God is walking with his people again in his restored and renewed uh, garden. Pope John Paul II says, All the virtues at first expelled from the earth by sin now re-enter history and meet, drawing the map of a world of peace. Mercy, truth, justice, and peace become the four cardinal points of this geography of the Spirit, God's good and renewed creation. And so on this second Sunday of Advent, may we feel uh, the tension of this psalm, uh, longing for God's peace, grateful for all that God has done in the past, Grateful for the ways that he has forgiven our sin. Grateful for how he meets us here and now, but longing and praying, Lord, would you come and finish your saving work? Would you come and get rid of sin and death and the devil? Would you come and root out the sin in our hearts that we long to be freed from? 
Um, that's why we're going to sing probably next week, Joy to the World. Did you know that's an Advent hymn? It's rooted in the Psalms and the second coming. Uh, think about it. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far, far as the curse is found. Come, Lord Jesus, root out the sin and sorrow in our world and in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Bring your kingdom in our midst and fill the world with the glory of your presence. Our prayer is from verse 7 of this psalm. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.